Hello and welcome to the SLB podcast, where we talk about ELT, SLA and other things that enthrall and infuriate us. On episode 3, we are very lucky to welcome Mike Long to join us in conversation. Mike is a professor of SLA at the University of Maryland and a TBLT expert. Stay tuned till the end of this podcast because we've got a competition to win one of four discounted places on our online TBLT course on which Mike Long is a tutor. So the question for that is coming up at the end of the show. Mike, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Neil? I'm not too bad, thanks. Now, you're known to most practitioners for two things, I think. Obviously, you're, you're very well known in academic terms in the SLA field, um, but practitioners know you, I think, mainly for your version of task-based language teaching, or TBLT, and we're very lucky, of course, to have you as a guest tutor on our online TBLT course. And secondly, your concept of focus on form, which I think integrates very much with, uh, with what your version of TBLT is all about. But first of all, maybe you could give us some background as to how um, you started working with tasks. Sure, yeah. I think there were two reasons, one negative, one positive. And the negative was that I was very disillusioned with the sort of training I'd received and then trying to use course books of the kind that Jeff Jordan is rightly railing against on a regular basis. Uh, my initial training was two weeks at International House before I was shipped out to the law faculty of the San Marcos Universidad Nacional de San Marcos in Lima, Peru, because I had a law degree. They said, right, you go and teach English to the lawyers. Um, really no training, uh, but I did that, muddled through it, went back, did a year at London Institute of Education, EFL, and there we had Jeffrey Broughton, Broughton Alex Baird, teaching us the same sort of stuff. So at this point, I was basically, I basically thought that the way you taught was just plug in to the page you were up to in the textbook and just bash on through it one structure at a time, drill it, get them to do it correctly and move on to the next one and so on. After a while, I went out to Mexico to the British Institute there, more of the same, except that the course books they were using were even worse. I mean, just dreadful things. And, um, uh, back to Essex for a year, working with Dick Allwright was a breakthrough because he was interested in tasks and very creative, terrific guy, terrific influence on my language teaching, made me start thinking about SLA, even though they didn't have any courses in it there. Uh, back to Mexico, then a year in Montreal um, when the Mexican economy went belly up, and then to UCLA to do a PhD, and this is where the second motivation came in, and this time it was a positive motivation. My supervisor there was... Evelyn Hatch, who's really the godmother of SLA, uh, at least in the United States. And uh, the more I learned about SLA, the less enthralled I was about traditional approaches to language teaching that I'd been trained to do. And so I started thinking about alternatives and um, started messing around with tasks, uh, ran a few little studies in the lab. And uh, when I got a job after I graduated, actually before I graduated, got a job at the University of Pennsylvania, I actually taught a course called Task-Based Language Teaching, which was very much exploratory on my part and the students' part. Did a plenary at Georgetown on it in 83, published in 85 in a book by Manfred Pienemann and Kenneth Hultenstam. 
and uh, never looked back since then. I moved to the University of Hawaii because my wife, Charlene Sato, was from Hawaii and they'd offered us both jobs. Um, so left Penn, went to Honolulu. Uh, Charlie died tragically young of cancer a few years later. And um, I, I stayed on there, remarried and so forth. And all this time I was teaching courses in TBLT like crazy, I mean, every year. I calculated the other day, I've taught TBLT about 20 times because I teach it in Maryland now as well. And so things have changed a lot since the early days, but the basic motivation, the positive motivation has been my recognition along with that of the field, that a lot of language learning, even by adults, is incidental. In other words, without intending to learn the language as object and implicit, uh, an ability that adults maintain throughout their life, um, not just for language learning, but for everything else, um, and can be applied in part to language learning, which doesn't mean to say that explicit language learning is unuseful. In fact, it's probably very useful. We can get into that later if you want. Uh, but that, of course, coincided with the idea that if somebody was focusing on doing a task and learning the language incidentally while doing it, um, so much the better because it has the advantage that you can be doing what you need to learn to do, such as the tasks for a particular job or if you're an international student, the tasks that you need while studying at an English medium or whatever medium university it is. Uh, without um, having to detract from that, you can pick up the language along the way. So to the extent that that's true, then TBLT had a huge advantage over um, classes where the focus was on the language itself mm. and uh, nothing on the, on the content. So as I say, there were really a negative motivation, which is had to get away from traditional drill and kill, ball and chain textbook teaching, which obviously is, is absurd the more you know about language acquisition. And positive motivation was learning something about language acquisition. Not everything by any means. We don't know how people learn languages in all respects. We do know some things though, and we know some ways in which they do not learn it. And so the negative was that, and then the positive was learning something about acquisition, mostly second language acquisition at UCLA. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned before that uh, Prabhu's Bangalore project also kind of had an influence early on, but you, you would differentiate what you regard as TBLT from what he was doing. Could you maybe just briefly talk about the difference between what Prabhu was up to and how TBLT developed in your eyes? Sure. Um, Prabhu never claimed to be doing TBLT. He was doing what he called the procedural syllabus, and um, he used what I would call pedagogic tasks. He had the uh, Indian children uh, doing things like, um, given, given various timetables, they would tell you, they would work out how to get from point A in India to point B using the I suppose, British Railway uh, system. Mm -hmm. um, but these, these tasks were pulled out of the air. They were not, you know, in any way supposed to be useful to the kids outside the classroom. And um, he also was very traditional in his ideas about how to teach. So he said he didn't believe in error correction, but in fact, when Alan Berner did his PhD dissertation out there, uh, analysis of all sorts of videos of uh, Prabhu and his assistants teaching. He found, of course, they were correcting errors, quote unquote, um, just like anybody else. He was also absolutely against any kind of group work because he said that they would make errors if they did this and, and on and on. Um, so it was very, very different. And as I say, he, he always said that what he was doing was the procedural syllabus. And um, 
I have a whole section analyzing what he did and what he didn't do and comparing it with TBLT in a book I wrote in 2015, mm -hmm. SLA and TBLT, mm -hmm. in, the, in the chapter on curriculum types. Um, whereas in, you know, in TBLT, I don't want to go through a whole thing unless you want me to, but no, I mean, no, the, don't worry. <laughs> no, the, the tasks, the tasks are not pulled out of the air. They're the result of a needs analysis. I mean, he never crossed did needs analysis or anything like, and, uh, everything follows from that. Now, uh, you mentioned error correction there and well, we mentioned this concept of focus on form and, uh, often causes confusion, but I think would I be right in saying that your idea of focus on form is about reacting to students' use of language in the middle of them doing communicative tasks and uh, kind of getting a kind of on-the-spot feedback. Would that be fair, a fair summary? I think that's, very, that's fine. I mean, the, the basic distinction that I made, the, the, the terms are unfortunate, I agree, almost calculated to, to induce confusion, but um, I didn't realize that at the time, it was between focus on forms, where the syllabus consists of linguistic structures of one kind or another, or notional functional units, but anyway, linguistic units and a synthetic syllabus of some kind, versus focus on form, where you have a con content of the syllabus is something else. In my case, it'd be tasks, but it could be, say, an Im content curriculum in an immersion program in Canada, for example. And then the crucial thing is that all the reasons why you don't do a structural syllabus or any kind of linguistic syllabus, uh, all, the, all that we know from SLA about the fact that you can only teach what they're capable of processing, this is Manfred Bienemann, of course, uh, and what they're capable of processing determines what they're capable of learning, not that they will learn it, but that they're at least potentially capable of learning it, and what they're capable of learning determines what you are capable of teaching them. Um, that's his uh, processability, learnability, and teachability hypotheses. For all the reasons that follow from that, why we don't use a synthetic syllabus, especially not a grammatical syllabus, uh, the same reasons apply to focus on forms in general. You, if, if you could just walk into the classroom and teach them whatever was on the textbook that day or whatever was in your head that day, then um, one would you know, go back to the traditional course book and all the, all the silly things that follow. The fact that we know that isn't possible is why we do focus on form instead where we are in a reactive mode that's crucial we are responding to the learners efforts to produce or read and understand doesn't matter whether it's receptive or productive and we're feeding in the language in harmony as much as we can with what Pitt Corder used to call the learner syllabus the internal syllabus which manifests itself all the time in things like developmental sequences for example impervious to instruction the order in which things are taught all the studies that have looked at that and there have been lots not just in English but other languages all of them find the same thing which is that uh, instructional sequences basically are the same as naturalistic sequences of people outside the classroom are not getting instruction at all, and that inside the classroom, acquisition se developmental sequences um, are impervious to instruction. Uh, they're only minimally affected by L1. There's very clear ways in which they are affected, but it's minimal. It doesn't alter the sequences. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it produces a substage in a sequence, for example. So it's given that we're assuming it is 
pointless to try to impose an external syllabus on learners. It follows that we will try to respond to the internal learner syllabus. And when they are, for, it's clearest when they try to produce, when they try to produce something, it's usually indicative of where they're up to, as it were. And it's at that point, just at the time they're trying, for example, to say something, that we feed in what's missing, usually in the form of, a, of an implicit of implicit negative feedback, a recast, as it's known. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea is that that's going to be much more likely usable language input for them because it's tailored to where to them. It's tailored to where they're up to. Whereas if you walk in and say, well, we're going to do unit three in the textbook, that's not tailored to anybody. The, 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 the textbook writer drinking his martinis on an island in the West Indies <laughs> never met your students and had no idea where they'd be up to this day. Um, so... It's, it's, it, it's, and as far as I can see, there's no arguments for the traditional focus on forms approach, whereas focus on form um, has a lot of arguments in its favor. Not that it's necessarily the correct answer. In fact, I have other ideas these days, um, but it's certainly an improvement on focus on forms and all the statistical meta-analyses, and there have been three or four by now, find that despite the biases in the studies in favor of focus on forms, for example, choice of a very simple structure, very short-term lab studies, tests that often reflect the treatment for the focus on forms condition, despite all that, focus on form does statistically non-significantly differently from focus on forms, which is a, you know, an endorsement of focus on form, in fact. So I think it has a good track record empirically. It's theoretically coherent. Doesn't mean to say it's correct. Doesn't mean to say it's perfect for sure, but it's certainly better than what preceded it. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the methodological principles of TBLT. Right. And from what you're saying, I mean, I think for a teacher, it's a question of knowing your students, not so much in the sense of knowing them as people, but, but having an awareness of developmental sequences and uh, where your students are at. Would you agree that that's something that teachers need to have training in to employ this effectively? Yeah, I don't think, I, don't, I, I, I mean, what you said is absolutely right. That's what it means. I don't think in practice many teachers, especially experienced teachers, need a lot of explicit training in the developmental sequences because, I mean, I was a teacher for years myself, full-time, and after a while, um, you develop a, a sense of, of where students are going to have problems, where they're up to, and so on and so forth. And it's, it's instinctive of native speakers or experienced and, and proficient non-natives for that matter, it's instinctive to modify what you say to your interlocutor. You know, people speak differently to foreigners, to dogs, cats, plants, mm -hmm. children, and so forth. And so it is in a classroom where you usually do know the students after a while. And you may, if you're in a foreign language setting, you may have taught many students who have the same L1 background for years. And so it's it's not so much training that's needed is just instinctively to respond to the students. I mean, we, we accept this principle in all other areas of education. It comes under different names, but you hear people in colleges of education say things like, you don't teach the subject matter, you teach the students, or, or start where the students are at, you know, things like that. In other words, that is basically saying the same, the same idea, which is that we modify what we're going to teach to where the students are up to. And so it's not, it's not a huge intellectual shift that's needed. Um, if, if when parents are talking to little children, they do this without any training, without thinking. Uh, and parents do it with the first child. They don't have to have one child and then learn how to do it. And then when the second child comes along, they adapt their language appropriately. They do it right from the get-go. 
Mm. And I remember doing a study at UCLA to, to make sure that was true of adults, and it was. It was. I, I, compared, I did five-minute interviews, not myself, but I had native speakers and non-native speakers paired randomly doing five interviews. This is one of the several studies I did early on at UCLA. And then I compared how they spoke in the first two and a half minutes to those people and how they spoke in the second two and a half minutes. No difference. And again, they, mm. they adapted within about 20 seconds. They're tuned into where the students were up to, and bingo, off they went. Mm-hmm. And some of these dialogues are reproduced in the 2015 book, right? I was looking at that the other day. Yeah, I think I think they are. Actually, not from that study. They're from a different study. But yeah, I mean, I, I did several studies at that time. Not all of them published, by the way, which is silly in a way. And uh, has the concept changed, developed over the years? I mean, I know there's this Doughty uh, and Williams chapter on focus on form, and they look at different modes of it in a way. You talk about reactive focus on form, but they also mention proactive focus on form. Yeah, I mean, the person who's done the most damage to the concept is Rod Ellis. Uh, it's really ir- ironic. He he published a, a critique of it a couple of years ago and was saying, oh, the thing has changed so much. Well, actually, the person who's changed it was not me ever. It's still the same as when I first came up with it. Uh, it's him more than anybody else. And so he's the person who introduced the idea of proactive focus on form, which is a contradiction in terms. I mean, mm. by all means, by all means, uh, Rod Ellis and anybody else of his ilk is welcome to advocate for something completely different from focus on forms, which is that you, in his, his ideas, you, you put in the stuff before the person makes the mistake, but don't call it focus on form. It just confuses the field. And certainly mm. don't criticize me later on for having done it because I haven't and didn't and don't. Okay. Rod Ellis gets a bit of a kicking on this podcast. <laughs> maybe we should maybe we should get him on one day and see what he says to all this. But um that's interesting. So you you kind of maintain this idea that it's reactive it's, That's part uh, of the definition of focus on form is that it's reactive. I mean, as I say, the half of the, 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 the logic of it is that you're responding to, to the indications of the learner of where they're up to and what they need next. And, and it seems to be, in your eyes, kind of mainly an implicit kind of teaching in the sense that we use uh, strategies that people might naturally use when they're speaking to somebody with a different level of language than they have, whether it be a child or a, uh, somebody from another country. And we might use recasts, confirmation checks, and this kind of thing. This is uh, the essence of it, right? Yeah, you're right. And it would be, it is perfectly possible to provide explicit input um, when learners get into trouble or even when they don't get into trouble because focus on form doesn't only work after errors. I mean, it can be in the form of expansions of what learners have said and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, you could do that. You can do that explicitly. And so... The, the reason for doing it implicitly where one can, which is usually, mm-hmm. is, as I said at the beginning, because one wants to maintain the focus on whatever the content of the course is. And remember, the content is not the linguistic structures per se, uh, but, say, tasks in, in my case. So, therefore, you're going to feed in that language in an implicit mode as much as possible, because that means that the focus of the classroom lesson remains on the main syllabus, which is, in this case, a series of pedagogic tasks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the big issues in TBLT today, in fact, in, in the field as a whole of SLA, is what is the 
relationship between the roles of and the relationships between incidental learning when you're focused on something else and learning the language incidentally, like in a French immersion program in Canada, for example, mm-hmm. uh, versus intentional learning where you're actually coming to the language as object and, and the whole point of it is to, in, to try to learn it uh, as, a, as an object. And related to each of those is implicit and explicit language learning and language teaching. I mean, those... My own view is that there is a place for a, a small place for explicit language learning, mm-hmm. um, but uh, and it's not random either. Um, but that the default position is incidental learning and implicit language learning. I think you know we're, people who with those sorts of views are still a minority uh, in the field of SLA. But it's uh, again, this is very impressionistic. I, I admit, but my impression over the last 20 years is that the numbers of people who actually do the research, I mean, people who, who are sort of up to speed with the literature, the, the, the numbers of people taking that sort of position is growing slowly, but steadily. Mm. Um, with people like Nick Ellis, not Rod Ellis, but Nick Ellis way out there, Patrick Rebuchard, John Williams. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of people um, who have been the pioneers in, in this, this area. Um, I happen to agree with them. I don't claim that th- this is my work, though. I, I'm, I'm a follower, if you like, of some of these people. I've been very much influenced by them. And I'm just right. saying that there's more and more people that I see who are taking similar positions. And some of them have come to it through TBLT, but mostly they're SLA people who then, in many cases, come to TBLT from SLA. Right. And in contrast with that, then, because it's interesting to me that you you live and work in the the states. There's a, obviously a strong tradition there coming from Stephen Krashen, and um, I listen to people like Bill Van Patten, who are a bit more skeptical about the idea of focus on form or any kind of um, explicit instruction. And they're more in that line of uh, input is enough, or obviously comprehensible input with with interaction. And um, do you find any? points in common with people like Van Patten or are you going in different directions? I, I, I used to work, when I was a student at UCLA, I did some work with Steve. He was at the other university in you know, University of Southern California, but we worked together. He and Robin Scarfett and myself on age differences, did a couple of articles and books and things together. And I was quite influenced by his early versions of monitor theory, but um, unlike Steve, I had a lot of language teaching experience. I mean, he's hardly ever taught language and it shows in his writing. Um, and uh, I was very you know, suspicious of some of the stuff, and I ended up writing an article in TESOL Quarterly about does second language instruction make a difference, uh, reviewing the research as it then was and claiming that he was wrong in about four different ways. Um, and so I parted company with him intellectually, and he soon after left the field anyway and went into other areas, more on the political and policy side of it, where I think he's done excellent work, by the way, in favor of bilingual education and other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he hasn't, he hasn't changed his views at all over the years. He now talks about compelling comprehensible input as opposed to just comprehensible input, but basically exactly the same ideas and all, all power to him. Uh, he, he's had a huge impact on the field of language teaching because, as it were, he threw down the gauntlet and said, you know, what you're doing, what you know, language teachers are doing is completely wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you should basically stop teaching. He said, no, no grammar teaching, no error correction and so on, just comprehensible input and the solution to errors is more comprehensible and on and on and on. And I wrote, you know, that the research didn't support that. And I, you know, continued to show that more and more research came out over the years, including immersion education in Canada. The findings there by Meryl Swain and others, which he used to use as evidence for his position, actually are evidence against his position. 
Uh, and he's never really been able to respond to those, as far as I can see. Bill Van Patten's always, you know, been very, very favorable towards Steve's ideas and um, still is. So uh, he is much more, I, I, I don't want to speak for what well, I'm trying, I suppose I am speaking for him, but I, I don't want to. I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth. Mm. I think if you read, for example, the article he wrote in the first issue of the new journal Instructed Second Language Acquisition, I mean, he's, he's still very close to those sorts of positions. And yet, funnily enough, input processing, which is the sort of methodology mm. that he and um, uh, what's the guy in Australia called, I forget now, um, he's, he's often you know, written with, uh, is actually highly structurally based. You know, it follows a structural syllabus. It tries to conceal it a bit, but there's a strong underlying structural syllabus and so on. It's very different from one of the things that he espouses when he's talking about SLA. That's my view. Now, don't get me wrong. He's a very bright guy. Again, has contributed a lot. And, uh, you know, I've learned over the years, it's a, you're a fool to, if, if the people are really smart and not obviously corrupt, then you're a fool to start criticizing what they say, because it may well be that they turn out to be correct anyway. And really, it doesn't matter who's correct or who's right. It's right. what's right that we're trying to find out if we're doing science. Sure. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm way away from Steve's ideas and have been for 30 years and from bills although you know bill at least sort of keeps up with the literature steve pretty much left the field he stopped going to slurf back in about 1980 um and uh moved into bilingual education political advocacy mm. has taken a lot of heat from the right wing in politics in the united states as a result and yet has kept going right uh, i think done a lot of good work for uh, minority communities and for bilingual education in particular and he's quite strong coming out against standardized testing and these kind of things. Absolutely, and, and a whole lot of other things. I mean, the guy is extremely smart. I always warn people who attack Crash and some of the British textbook writers, they like to attack anything in SLA, and mm. he was the first target. And I've warned some of them. I said, you know, if he ever came back into the field, have you ever seen those samurai movies where they have the guys, you know, go whoosh, 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 and, the, and, and the body falls to the, hits the desk, it hits the... <laughs> In parts, I said, you know, intellectually, he would do the same kind of thing to you. He, he's so much smarter uh, than most of the people who criticize him. And unlike them, he's actually done research and read research. Right, right. One thing I'd like to go into a little bit, I mean, this is all in your book, uh, Mike, but one of the most interesting chapters in the 2015 book, I think, is about the philosophical underpinnings of uh, TBLT. Could you give us a quick overview of the kind of main strands in that chapter for people who haven't read the book yet? It seems to me that uh, TBLT, at least the way I do it and advocate it, um, is uh, consistent with the same sorts of philosophical underpinnings in the history and philosophy of education that most teachers are okay with, I mean, you know, agree with, and it dates back to people in 18th and 19th century political philosophy, like William Godwin, for example, and, and Kropotkin, and ideas have come from them um, up through 20th century writers on education. They are things like rationality, in other words, not doing things without some kind of logical motivation to them, and believing that uh, education, like anything else, can and should have a scientific basis. You learn things better by actually doing things rather than talking about things. 
So if you want to make a, if you want to learn to make a phone call in another language, for example, then the best way of doing it is actually making a phone call in the other language, a simple one to start with, and then gradually a more complex phone call. If you don't have a phone in the classroom, then by, although most, most people do these days, at least in the West, then um, role-playing it, whatever, as opposed to reading a transcript of a phone call made by two characters in a textbook. That's the difference, as it were, between focusing on the language as object and actually trying to learn the language by doing something, in this case, doing a phone, making a phone call. Um, so learning by doing has a huge uh, history behind it and, and evidence in support of it. And that goes hand in hand with the idea of tasks being the unit of analysis in a, in a course. Uh, and so the, if it lets us say that one of the things somebody has to do in another language is be able to make phone calls in that language, then they start off with very simple pedagogic tasks, simple versions of phone calls, and then gradually get the, the calls get more complex. And the idea is that the added complexity of the pedagogic task drives the interlanguage, drives the learner's language or version of the second language along with it, um, and that they incorporate more and more of the input that's provided to them um, and use it and learn by using it. It's learner-centeredness is another sort of principle of that kind of education. And again, TBLT is very much learner-centered because it starts by doing a needs analysis and then the course is adapted to the needs of the particular group of students, as opposed to using commercially published textbooks, course books, where they were written without any knowledge of who was going to use them, except the most general type. You know, these are going to be secondary school kids or these are going to be adults and so forth, but they're not tailored to any particular group of students. TBLT is very much tailored to particular groups of students depending on the results of the needs analysis. It has egalitarian teacher-student relationships in the classroom. Um, mutual aid is another general principle and cooperation manifested most obviously in sort of small group work and so forth, although that's not essential. It can be also between teacher and students. And there's an emancipatory uh, element to it as well, because the idea is that if the learners are learning how to do things that they actually need to do, then they can have an impact on their environment rather than just be passive recipients of what the environment does to them. So, for example, refugees coming to another country, or don't have to be a refugee, supposing you have uh, Muslim women uh, coming as international students, and they may come from a very strict Muslim society, uh, such as Saudi Arabia or the Emirates, at least the Northern Emirates, Emirates uh, where they would never have been able to do much at home without a male chaperone. They couldn't even go to see a doctor on their own, that kind of thing. Well, if they, supposing that doctor-patient appointments was one of the target tasks because most students, international students, if they're going to be overseas for three, four, five years or even longer, they're going to have to go to the doctor a few times during that period and to dentists and all sorts of other service encounters. Uh, but they would never have done it at home and they would never have done it overseas without a male chaperone. So if TBLT equips them uh, to be able to do it themselves, that's sort of a, a rather trivial example, I agree, of what I mean by emancipatory uh, dimension to education because one is effectively uh, equipping them to do something that they need to be able to do but couldn't without it. So th there's a very, there's a whole bunch of principles that come for originally from philosophy of education, history of education, uh, not from history of language teaching, uh, but which I think are well 
represented in TBLT principles, and very often they, they coincide with independent motivation for TBLT from psycholinguistic research. Yeah, let me um, play devil's advocate, but I'm struggling because maybe I can't remember exactly where I saw this, but I think I saw one of your articles, maybe it's in the book somewhere, where you were confronting a criticism you'd had maybe quite early on, that, that yes, TBLT fits in with these principles of liberal or emancipatory education, but you'd been criticized by somebody who was saying it was maybe more too instrumentalized, that, that in fact, if you were just teaching people how to do certain work-related tasks. Oh, mm -hmm. Do you remember that, Mike? Well, I mean, that was, I remember Chris Candlin, who was a visiting uh, prof at Hawaii in the very, very early days. He was there for a year. And I remember when Graham Crooks and I wrote something, I forget what it was, maybe an article we had in TQ. But anyway, we, we showed him the manuscript of that. Ah, yeah. He told us that um, it was, his, his comment was that it was social engineering of the worst sort. That was that, exactly what he was said. It. That now, was Chris was a, considered himself to be a Christian socialist, so he would knock on doors in the north of England, near Lancaster, wherever, on behalf of the Labour Party come election time. And so he was very, he was thinking of Thatcher, you know, that awful woman who was first education secretary and then prime minister. And of course, you know, quite rightly, was just appalled by her kind of policies. And so when he said social engineering, he was thinking of the kind of stratification of class and society that she was... Um, honing and, and sharpening up mm. uh, like most Tory politicians um, at the time. So when he said social engineering, he was he basically said, because we chatted with him about it, um, he basically thought that what we were in danger of doing was confining or limiting or relegating students to some menial position because all we taught them was how to do the jobs related with that position. Right. And there what happened to be in Hawaii at the time an example. He didn't know it, but I, I suggested it to him that he could use. There was, uh, I mean, Hawaii, the education system is appalling, always has been, because the whole economy is based on two things, U.S. federal mil military bases and the tourist industry. And so there's very few jobs there for anybody with an education. So most people who get an education have to leave. They want to do anything as an engineer or something. So what happened was that as the, as the education, the schools were being defunded, just as they are all over this country, uh, it doesn't matter which government's in or which party's in, in, in charge, they keep cutting public education. Uh, so public schools in Hawaii, which were miserable in the first place, were getting worse and worse. And so some of the hotels, some of these foreign-owned hotels started to adopt, I, that was the term they used, to adopt local schools. One of them, for example, at the time of this conversation with Chris Candlin, was offering to fund a school and they wanted the school to start teaching Japanese because this was the heyday, the height of all the Japanese tourism coming to the US, including Hawaii. Uh, and the idea was that the students would learn, these were little kids, that they would learn how to, enough Japanese to do things like golf caddying, uh, working in hotel jobs and so on in Japanese because so many of the tourists were Japanese. Now that's the kind of thing that would uh, you know, potentially lead to social engineering because you'd be relegating kids to they just knew enough Japanese to do the job that the surrounding society or corporation wanted them to do but right. of course that's the that's is a possibility I agree but that's not TBLT that's misuse of TBLT by other mm. people uh, I would I would counter by saying that as I mentioned briefly a moment ago the 
emancipatory function of TBLT works in exactly the opposite direction. It empowers people, I hate that uh, term, it empowers people to do things that they might not be able to do if they were just doing um, the traditional course book and so forth. Right. Okay, thanks for that. Let's get into two or three questions that we've had from people who follow us on social media because we uh, publicized the fact we were going to be speaking to you. And there are a lot of teachers very interested in TBLT. I think it's fair to say that your version of TBLT is something that needs to be deployed at an institutional level. But still, we've got lots of teachers, as, as you know from the course, who uh, would not get institutional support to implement TBLT, but yet they want to to, to try it out. What, one question we had from a teacher was, what are some of the main pitfalls to look out for when when taking this approach? What, what's to be avoided if you want to take a TBLT approach to teaching? Well, it's difficult for an individual teacher to do it if there's no institutional support. Um, so whether you're working in a public school or a private language school, whatever it is, uh, it should be the institution that makes a decision about, you know, the kind of courses it's going to offer and what the rationale for them is. Because if you're going to do TBLT properly, there's going to be a needs analysis. And you can't expect, you know, practicing classroom teachers who have a 24-hour-a-day job as it is to start doing needs analysis. Yes, you can do a quick, dirty needs analysis the first day using a questionnaire or whatever, but this really isn't satisfactory. And all that's really going to show is what the goals of the students are or what they think they are. And it's really not going to show what they need in order to achieve those goals. So as I say, it should really be done before courses start by the institution. Uh, so if, if an isolated teacher is going to try to do TBLT on their own, um, it's going to be very demanding because, first of all, where are they going to get the materials from? If they're, if they're in that kind of an environment, they probably have a prescribed textbook with prescribed uh, focus on forms, kinds of tests to do, and all sorts of other horrible things. Um, and so it's going to be very difficult for them just suddenly to say, well, now I'm going to do TBLT, which is very different from this, radically different in many ways. Mm. I, would, I would suggest that in practice, the best thing they can do is try to find a small group of like-minded teachers in the institution. I've seen that happen quite well. And then they, they cooperate together and, and a, gr a small group of them over, say, a year may do a needs analysis in the first semester while they're doing their regular jobs and mm -hmm. write some materials. And then in the second semester, start using the materials. This is not, you know, as, as it should be done, um, but it is doable that way. I, I pity the individual teacher who's trying to do this on their own. I think that, you know, you can make things look you can do things that look like TBLT. You could actually have students doing communicative tasks in the classroom and so on. But I mean, you could do that with communicative language teaching. Not, not, you didn't have to wait for TBLT to come along to do that. And as I say, it doesn't really deal with whether the tasks have anything to do with what the, what the students actually are learning the language for and on and on. I mean, writing materials is, is a very tricky thing to do. I think it's like potters and pottery. I mean, you, you get more skilled at throwing pots the more you do it. And most, most high-skilled things have the same thing. There's a huge practice element in it. And so, you know, t materials writers are usually very good at doing the kind of things they do. You take somebody like Michael Swan, for example. I used to work for Michael. Again, a very smart guy, by the way. He's very wrong about some of his views on language teaching, I think, but really smart. And the materials he writes are brilliant. Uh, but they're brilliant, they're brilliant examples of structurally based or grammatical syllabuses dressed up to try and disguise as much as possible and so on. 
Um, but as good as you're going to find of that kind of materials. Now, a, a, a teacher who suddenly says, well, I want to do a completely different kind of teaching, so I've got to have to write task-based materials. They don't have any of that background. Mm. Probably have much less experience in the classroom than Michael, who was a great teacher to observe. I, I, I was apprenticed to him in my very, very early days. Learned a lot from him. At the time, I took it all you know, with a, you know, without even questioning it. Later, of course, I began to question a lot of it. Uh, but not his abilities. And um, what I'm saying is that a teacher or even a group of teachers who, you know, it's, it's asking an awful lot of themselves to try and write decent materials of any kind. However, having said that, you have to start somewhere. And what I found myself is that once I'd written a few just isolated task-based materials, you know, just little tiny sets of materials, good for one class, one lesson, it became, it's, it's great fun. It's much more fun than writing structural materials, which I also have done. Yeah. I've the structural materials in two or three countries, a whole series of course books um, for my sins. But it's much more fun. And once you've done a few, you get the hang of it pretty quickly and you can write more and more. And, it's, and it is quite amusing to do. But again, it's not at the same professional level as a professional materials writer. Right. That's kind of addressing two questions we had. I should mention who asked them. So we had one question from Sarah Priestley, who's a, a teacher in, in Milan in Italy, and she was asking about pitfalls. We had another question from uh, a teacher called Stephen Allen, who's based in Poland. So Sarah was asking about pitfalls and Stephen was asking about materials. You're talking about clubbing together to write materials. We advocate teachers create banks of materials as well. You know, yes. uh, Again, ideally done at an institutional level, of course. But Stephen, yes. Stephen was also asking about where TBLT materials can be found, pre-existing, pre-made ones that might be able to be adapted to different contexts. That's a tough question, I thought. There, there isn't much available, is there? Well, you're not going to find, and hopefully you will never find, commercially written, commercially published TBLT materials. Uh, I'm going to qualify that in a minute. But hopefully the, the okay. general understanding should be that they will never be commercially published, because if they were, they would be violating just about everything that TBLT stands for, because it means that some Somebody in an office, probably in London or New York, had sat down and wrote materials into a void, you know, without knowing who they were writing them for, what the needs were, and so on and so forth. Right. One of the nice things about TBLT, precisely the fact that, you know, groups of teachers do tend to work together to, do, to produce materials, and then, as you said, develop a materials bank. We did that with a, we began to do that with a refugee program here in Maryland that we were volunteering at for some of the PhD students and I over about a three-year period. You can develop the materials back. Once you've got them, of course, many teachers can use them. They get slightly modified and improved, but they're used again and again. So you don't have to keep writing the materials. You don't have to keep doing a needs analysis. It's money. It's heavy lifting at the beginning, but then, you know, money in the bank once you've done it. But other pitfalls, are, and then I talk about materials pitfalls, as I say, lack of a, lack of a proper needs analysis is one. But the other thing is that even when you have the materials, they can often be unintentionally short-circuited. Uh, by teachers and or by the students uh, who don't really, they, they can, I mean, um, Bygate and what's uh, the other the woman who writes with her all the time, um, writes with him? Uh, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure, sorry. She's written a lot about this, the fact that you know, task-based materials can sometimes be unintentionally changed by teachers and students. Uh, and so the original purpose of the materials is not actually delivered. I mean, this happens with all sorts of materials, not just task-based ones. Uh, but that's something else that can go wrong pretty easily. Another one is that you can have an inappropriate test so that the, the course might be task-based. And then there's a test at the, test at the end, which is not task-based. 
what's lacking in the materials area, of course, is ready-made materials. But as I say, that they, they eventually can be ready-made and, and very good, but ready-made for particular populations, not necessarily for particular institutions only. Uh, so there are some fields where I think that actually commercial, I was going to put in a caveat and here it comes, I think there are some fields where commercially published materials are viable, genuine task-based materials. So if we take tourism as a general field, mm. we do not want to have task-based courses like English for Tourism or things like that. In fact, those kind of books exist and have done forever. And yes. they usually just re lightly relexified grammatical syllabuses. They change the vocabulary a bit. But the problem with, with a field like tourism is that there's so many completely different jobs within that field, completely different occupations. And so, of course, tourism is not the right unit of analysis. It would be a question of, you know, are we talking about tour guides? Are we talking about hotel receptionists? Are we talking about airport you know, personnel with, with flight attendants and all sorts of things? And they are going to be very, very different in what they, what they actually need. But having identified some occupations which are high frequency, say, for a particular language school or high frequency for a university program that is actually producing uh, graduates who are going to go into the tourist industry, then I think it is viable. The numbers are large and mm. one would quickly develop the materials for a field like that. But again, not tourism, but particular occupations which happen to be in the tourist industry. Another one more example because of time. Uh, if you were looking at international students, students who go often to English speaking countries, but they might go to all sorts of countries for particular fields of studies which are very popular, then I don't see what's wrong with the idea of task based materials for academic purposes. We have lots of English for academic purposes materials, but they're not task based, most of them. Right. I'm talking about task based materials for certain fields especially but not only at the graduate level so things like say biomedical engineering uh, or computer science or robotics and so forth where you get loads and loads of international students coming to uk australia us canada and so forth and no doubt going in the other direction to places like germany and so forth so it'd just be a question of the l2 changing but the same idea i think yeah. there there are numbers are good enough Publishers would be interesting if people came along with viable task-based materials for those particular fields of study, and they certainly can be done. That can be done. Sure. And there are other examples too. Another another one at the level of vocational training would be people who go abroad, in fact, to places like Spain, hopefully more and more, to learn how to cook a particular fields. I mean, a huge uh, mm. job, a huge employment area is is chefs. You know, people who work in kitchens. Right. Um, and the language of the kitchen, of course, is very different from, say, the language out front where the, where the customers are eating. Um, but people have to go and learn in French restaurants, Japanese restaurants, German, Spanish restaurants, and so on, uh, for months, sometimes even years. And it seems to me that it would be very viable to produce, say, English or German or Spanish courses, occupational, task-based occupational courses in the L2 of the country concerned for people who are going overseas to learn, you know, vocational training to learn how to do, how to become a French or Spanish chef or whatever. I think that having commercially published task-based materials is not out of the question, uh, but it's a bit of a stretch and in a way runs counter to the idea of TBLT, which is the materials should be written ideally for particular groups of students in front of you. As I say, if you have regularly the same kinds of students in front of you, then it, then it, it deals with that problem. One of the other good things, by the way, about having groups of teachers writing materials is that they know the students, they're in touch with them, they've done some kind of needs analysis, they know exactly what they need and want.
And then the fact that they're working together and cooperatively like this and independent of some kind of huge publishing outfit and all the commercial horror that that brings with it, uh, is it goes along with the sort of uh, philosophical principles of TBLT, which is that you get independent groups of teachers working together in some sort of cooperative uh, arrangement rather than just being the the instruments that deliver some course that was commercially published for profit not for the students big change right and of course we endorse that uh, cooperative approach here and it's something that's worked for us in in barcelona developing courses for for different professions in companies that we work with i would just add to that uh, if teachers are working together to try to produce materials that they're lacking sort of inspiration how is it done you know we know that in your book chapter nine of your book you give a few examples i would maybe add as well that there are a few published articles i'm thinking of one uh Gila Bert Malitska and i was just going to say the same thing you've got right there in barcelona with roger gilabert you've got yeah. one of the best people in the world on this stuff and Malitska and there's a, two or three others there john, john norris was on the article as well um yes but yes, the, these kind of articles that uh, look at uh, sequencing tasks, for example, for particular groups, and they, they sometimes include in the appendix examples of the materials. Yes. And I think, obviously, what we're, what we're not saying is that you just take these and, and reuse them, but it can certainly inspire or give ideas as to how tasks might be sequenced, how materials might be designed, right? Absolutely. It's a prototype. So it's, it's going to be hard to expect Roger or somebody like that to sit down and write a complete course for uh, TV broadcasters or journalists or, or hotel receptionists, as they did in that particular uh, article. Uh, but yes, two or three example pedagogic tasks is what's needed. And the ones I did in my book, I mean, I, try, I think I preface it by saying that the problem with writing materials into a void like I was doing there is that nobody's, most, most people are not going to be interested in the particular target tasks you produce because they don't have those kinds of students. Mm-hmm. And they shouldn't be, therefore, interested in them. So what one can only, what, the only thing one can do in publications like mine and others is to show examples and try to talk about the principles that they, rep, that they reflect Sure. In other words, talk about the design of tasks in general and how they would be used in cl- pedagogic tasks and how they would be used in the classroom without any expectation that the particular examples you talk about have any interest to anybody else. And that's the problem with materials, that if you start publishing you know, articles which have materials in them, first of all, the journals don't want it because it takes up too much space. And secondly, those particular articles would be of interest to, say, 2% of their readership. Sure. And uh, yeah, I would just add as an extra kind of plug, we've got Roger uh, as a, another guest tutor on our course, and we do look at some of his materials, including the materials for teaching the writing of emails to Catalan journalists, which again, I think gives another kind of prototype for how to approach yeah, this. Yeah, and, and, the, and the article they did in, I think, language teaching research about three years ago on the hotel receptionist. I mean, it's just right. you're very lucky to have him there right on your doorstep and um, some of the other people who he has produced out of the University of Barcelona program in applied linguistics there. I mean, terrific. Some of the best people around. Absolutely. Uh, Mike, do you have time for one last question? Sure. The last question we got from social media was from, I think, is Chris Cooper, and it's more getting back to the academic context. And he asks, what is lacking in current TBLT research or which avenues would you suggest future TBLT researchers explore? Mm. 
Um, there's certainly a lot of things to be done. Um, one is the big question, which is a big question in SLA as a, as a whole, the relationship between incidental and intentional learning, implicit and explicit learning and instruction. I mean, research in that area, even if it weren't for TBLT, is uh, greatly needed. And there's lots of things going on at the moment um, in the front line of the, of the SLA and ISLA literature. There's more work needed. We still really are not very clear on what dimensions of task complexity really work uh, in terms of um, sequencing tasks. We have ideas, but a lot of task sequencing at the moment, even in genuine TBLT materials, is done by the seat of our pants. It's a lot of, there's a lot of impressionistic judgments required, which is not ideal, um, because just we, you know, these I and other people have criticized grammatical and notional functional syllabuses, among others, for having pretty much arbitrary sequencing. In other words, no real criteria. They talk about, well, we have simple before complex, but they have no means of identifying how those are judged. Yes, well, we can't yeah. fall into the same trap ourselves. And so, of course, there's been a big effort going back 15, 20 years now of trying to test empirically, you know, which kinds of task complexity dimensions have which kinds of consequences. And there have been some findings there, but the findings are mixed enough that, say, Pete Skeen recently wrote that he thinks we might be better off going back to task conditions as the way, in, as Peter Robinson's term, of course, uh, as a way of sequencing pedagogic tasks. Now, I don't believe that. I think Peter and I were right in saying that the way to sequence ta pedagogic tasks is by the complexity of the tasks themselves, not the conditions. That's a within uh, complexity variable that one a teacher can manipulate. Uh, but I also agree that we don't really have a handle on it. So I would like to see research in that area on open versus closed tasks, on feedback loops in tasks, you know, where such that the, 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 the information, the, the negative feedback where needed is built into the tasks themselves so that if a student is going off track, they're immediately alerted to this. Um, in the materials themselves. Of course, the teacher may be able to do it, but not always. And that's easiest done on a computer. But, you know, even, even on a computer, we don't have too many ideas about um, how to do that yet. Uh, so I would say that, that that's another area, the whole area of task complexity. And then the biggest area, I think, if we just pick one area, uh, I would say that task-based assessment you know, testing of abilities, you know, testing to see whether people can now do their target tasks is something that's needed. Now, we know how to do that pretty well, and it's actually quite straightforward and, and considerably more valid than the way it's done with proficient, so-called proficiency testing and grammar testing and so on, which have no validity whatsoever uh, if you're actually interested in people having a functional command of the language, because you can have a score of two plus or pink minus on some proficiency scale and it tells you absolutely nothing about what the learner can do for a particular job, for example, or a field of study. Same thing with saying, oh, he got such and such on the TOEFL or whatever, or IELTS or um, Pearson or whatever. It tells you nothing about whether they're going to be able to do such and such a course at a university. Now, if you test the actual tasks that they have to do, that tells you exactly what you need to know about whether they can do it. The problem is that there are some kinds of tasks that don't lend themselves very easily to simple behavioral outcomes. There's many that do, and we know how to do it very well then because there's a whole literature on criterion reference testing, which we have basically adopted and brought into TBLT. It works very well for most things. And I've given plenty of examples in that book I wrote and read John Norris on it and, and other people. 
but there's still a lot to be done. For example, what do you do when you have tasks that are more abstract uh, and don't don't um, allow such simple reduction to behavioral measures in the as the outcome measure of the the dependent variable? What do you do when the tasks if you're if you're doing TBLT with a morphologically complex language like Russian? Again, Roger Gilbert. Um, has a super article in the recently published Handbook of Language Learning, the, the Cambridge Handbook of Language Learning. Uh, he and, 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 and um, somebody else at the University of Barcelona, Juan Castelvi, uh, have got an article about how you do, do that. You know, if you have a language where morphological accuracy like that is going to be important, one of my PhD students Kyoko Hillman, Kobayashi Hillman, and I wrote something based on a qualifying paper she did here in a program on um, very, very advanced Japanese for diplomats giving after-dinner speeches where the exact wording you use is, is, is almost more important than what you say. Uh, so there's areas there where the testing, we need more work on how best to test that in a mm. task manner. And if I can give a plug, um, I'm at the moment involved with co-editing with Mohammed Ahmadian at University of Leeds. Uh, we're co-editing a handbook of task-based language teaching for Cambridge, Cambridge University Press. Um, in each section of the book, we have case studies, and one of the sections is on teacher education for TBLT, and uh, we have people like John Norris and others doing chapters on it, and then we have case studies. One of them is yours with Jeff on the SLB course, online mm -hmm. course, which you run once and hopefully going to keep running. And uh, there's another one from the Foreign Service Institute here and, and so on. And so in that uh, handbook, we have chapters on task-based testing by John Norris and John Davis and so forth. And, and again, a few case studies, but it's definitely an area which is very important and hasn't had as much research attention yet. Uh, as others. So, so whoever asked the question about what needs to be doing, there's plenty of work to be done. And TBLT is a, is a joint collaborative effort. I mean, there are research agendas, fortunately, not just one-off studies, going on all over the world where there are more and more groups of people who are interested in this. A lot of them are SLA people who've moved into it. Others are teachers who've come into it from the field, as it were. And there are, there are groups in many schools, but especially at university departments, doing really quite good research and some very, very good young, younger SLA people. You, I thought you were going to ask me about my SLA football team, by the way, because you asked Jeff. Oh, me. well, I mean, if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a, had a good lineup. Uh, do we have three minutes? Yeah, yeah, of course. Go, go okay. for it. So, and, that, and some of the people I have in mind for doing that kind of, who are doing that kind of research so well are in it. So here's my, I'm, I'm doing Mike, somewhat... Yeah, you better have positions because uh, Jordan was useless at uh, the position. I do have positions. In fact, I'm I'm going for a four two one three, and I'll go from the um, back. In goal, we have Kenneth Hiltonstam from Sweden uh, because he's very reliable, knows his research methods on a wide range of topics, and he's very very good and careful at the back. The back four. We have from left to right, Manfred Pienemann with all his work on processability theory. And then the two center backs are William O'Grady and Andrea Reves, one of these younger people doing such great work on, in SLA in general and TBLT in particular. And then right, the right back is going to be Mane Bielund, another product from the great Stockholm school. 
Uh, they're all, I mean, most of them you know all about anyway, so I won't go through the literature unless you ask me to. The two def- holding midfielders, six and eight, in other words, are going to be Nick Ellis and Alison Mackey, um, because the whole orientation of this team is very much the implicit statistical learning side of the fence. Uh, and the, although we've got people, you know, to, uh, as you'll see in a minute, who are going to keep a t- keep tabs on us. But Nick and Allison are two people who are driving the field in many ways. And in front of them, one of my favorite of the, of the next generation at the moment is Alina Godfroyd, uh, currently at Michigan State, um, whose work is just terrific, as is the work of everybody I'm mentioning here. She would be our number 10, effectively playing behind the, the front line. Mm-hmm. So four two, one, and now the front three, these are our attacking players, quite radical, quite uh, aggressive striker, Stefano Rastelli from Italy with his book on statistical learning. He also, if the book is a bit daunting for some people, he has an article in Language Acquisition, the journal in, 19, in 2019, which basically talk, you know, explains his theory in one in article length treatment, but Rastelli on statistical learning, and then left wing, uh, this is just in soccer terms, Patrick Rebuchat, uh, who again is doing um, terrific work, has been for some years. He was a John Williams product out of Cambridge. Now he's at Lancaster doing terrific work on incidental and implicit learning and statistical learning. And then on the right wing, one of my ex-students, a Catalan, uh, Gisela Graniena. Hmm. Fantastic person now just chewing up the literature on age differences on aptitude on cognitive individual differences and so on so a really dazzling she's if you like the the Lionel Messi of the future a dazzling front line with with new ideas right behind the Melina Godfrey in the number 10 role holding the midfield together and driving everything in front of them, Nick Ellis and Alison Mackey, and then a very solid, experienced back line of Manfred Pienemann and William O'Grady, Andrew Rivers and Manny Bielan, within goal, Kenneth Hilton. But that's not all. The coach, Sue Gass. Her ability to marshal a team like that. And then the referee would be Jürgen Meisel. Why Jürgen Meisel? One of the three people I always hold up to our students as being models of, of good researchers. Uh, the other two, I mean, there, there are more than two, but uh, the others being uh, Lydia White uh, and Kenneth Hiltonstam. But Jürgen Meisel uh, would be the referee uh, because he's one of the few people in the field who really knows all the UG stuff and everything else. So he can keep, you know, keep, control over anybody who's getting completely out of line either way. And then up doing the VAR, we have Kevin Gregg, who has an idea, uh, 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 an, an eye for detail, and he'll catch any slight mistake. Somebody with one foot over a line, Kevin will spot it. Uh, so he would be in the room upstairs. There are people on the bench like Peter Robinson, John Williams, and others with no time to talk about them all who can come in and, uh, at, a, at a moment's notice. But that lineup, I think, is dazzling. Uh, and uh, they would be my SLA team. And, and Mike, I think the only place left for you is director of football. Is that? Is that <laughs> I wouldn't want to work for FIFA, corrupt organization. <laughs> <laughs> you can be in charge of transfers and uh, you can be chewing the coach's ear. I, w- I was delighted though the other day to see that um, my my team, well, my besides Arsenal, that is, but, but that Barcelona, the team I've supported for years and years and years, put out a very nice statement about the Catalan uh, situation, as right. did Pep Guardiola, who put out a whole video about it. Yeah, he did, yeah. 
And yeah. well, in fact, the big argument here now is whether or not the the next Clásico is going to take place in uh, Camp Nou or or not, because that's right. The Spanish football back at the Bernabeu, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they're trying to move it back. And uh, mm-hmm. well, well, as we as we mentioned before we started recording, a lot of things happening in Catalonia at the moment. Yep. And uh, well, football being part of the fabric of life here doesn't doesn't escape these things at all. Mike, thank you very much. I think you're very welcome. Thanks for asking me. Not at all. Um, it's been really interesting talking to you, and uh, I I hope that listeners have found it informative and interesting too. I'm sure they have. So that's it for episode three but before we go here's that question i promised you to win one of four discounted places on our online tutor tblt course on which mike long and roger gilabert as well who mentioned in the interview are guest tutors along with me and jeff jordan and the course is normally sold for just under 500 euros but you can get a 15 percent discount that's 425 euros for a 90 hour course sounds daunting but this course is spread over many weeks into manageable sessions the question is this mike and i were talking about his concept of focus on form which type of communicative interaction does mike most frequently advocate as a way of implementing focus on form in the classroom now this could be uh, something that teachers do with students or indeed it can take place in student student conversation so what does mike most frequently advocate as a way of implementing focus on form in tasks in the classroom please send your answers to my email address that's neil n-e-i-l at slb.coop or by sending us a direct message on twitter and we'll have these links as well as a link to the course so you can find out more information about that that starts on november the 8th 2019 this competition is for the november 8th course only so good luck with that hope you can join us again for episode four cheerio